The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. Most of you are familiar, especially those of you who have any kind of uh, uh, background in terms of you've, you've grown up, you're 15, 16, 18, 20, 30, 40, 50 or older. You, by now, you've probably seen a president uh, take his oath of office. Um, you've You've recognized that cycle every four years, even if it's someone that is reelected, that there's that, that formal engagement where they, they swear afresh to the responsibilities of the office, and then they give what's considered their inaugural address, uh, their, their opening speech for their, their time in office. And it's a unique opportunity to, to really set the tone and trajectory of one's administration. Uh, the president's office is not one to rule, but to lead. And there is a distinction. And Ideally, that's how it's going to be played out in a faithful uh, democracy, as it were. And so in this opening engagement with the nation, they share a view to how they hope to lead, um, how they hope to direct the nation. Uh, The following, in view of that, is a historical commentary taken from President John F. Kennedy's Presidential Library's website. And it speaks to his inaugural address, one that's, I'd say, well-known, probably one of the more well-known, not only here, but throughout the world. And so it's an extended quote or citation, as it were, but I think it's helpful to kind of set us up for our engagement back in Philippians. It states, on January 20th, 1961, a clerk of the U.S. Supreme Court held the large Fitzgerald family Bible as John F. Kennedy took the oath of office to become the nation's 35th president. Against a backdrop of deep snow and sunshine, more than 20,000 people huddled in 20-degree temperatures on the east front of the Capitol to witness the event. Kennedy, having removed his top coat and projecting both youth and vigor, delivered what has become a landmark inaugural address. His audience reached far beyond those gathered before him to people around the world. In preparing for this moment, he sought to both to inspire the nation and to send a message abroad, signaling the challenge of the Cold War and his hope for peace in the nuclear age. He also wanted to be brief, as he remarked to his close advisor, Ted Sorensen, I don't, want to pe- I don't want people to think I'm a windbag. They don't think that if you talk for a long time. <laughs> he assigned Sorensen the task of studying other inaugural speeches and Lincoln's Gettysburg's, Gettysburg Address to glean the secrets of successful addresses. The finely crafted final speech had been revised and reworked numerous times by Kennedy and Sorensen until the president-elect was satisfied. Though not the shortest of inaugural addresses, Kennedy's was shorter than most at 1,355 words in length, and like Lincoln's famous speech was comprised of short phrases and words. In addition to message, word choice, and length, he recognized that captivating his audience required a powerful delivery. On the day before and on the morning of Inauguration Day, he kept a copy handy to take advantage of any spare moment to review it, even at the breakfast table. What many considered to be the most memorable and enduring section of the speech came towards the end when Kennedy called on all Americans to commit themselves to service and sacrifice. Quote, And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. He then continued by addressing his international audience, quote, my fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. Now, President Kennedy's carefully framed speech had a clear high point in these well-known charges, first to the nation and then to the world. And that was to be good citizens. 
That's Again, he's not a dictator. He is one who leads, and leading requires a measure of persuasion, a measure of trying to encourage people to go in the, the direction that you would desire them to. And if you want to lead well, you want to lead with the interest of all that you're caring for, all that you're leading. And so it was a reasonable charge. It was a good charge in the civic context. Be good citizens. Live worthy of the identity that you have been given as citizens of this country and, by extension, as citizens to this world. And what might that look like? Well, he plainly had a view to acts of selfless service for the greater good of the larger community and then encouraged that this view be expanded to the greater good of all people. That was a a well-expressed exhortation by one who hoped to lead a diverse nation of people who all had their own respective needs and desires but shared the capacity to come together in a powerfully effective way in service to one another. And we understand this exhortation, this call to a selfless, greater good for others. It's part of the reason that it's become such an attractive, powerful moment. It wasn't just because, well, he studied well and he crafted his words well. Or he had that nice little memorable statement that now, I guess, would be tweeted out or a soundbite. It was, it was capturing really the essence of what good citizenship is. And, and so others who make up our communities and nation, they, and ultimately the world recognize, yes, that's, that's a worthwhile thing to be. We want to be good citizens, good representatives, good community members. And in a like but far superior manner, Paul called upon the beloved Philippians to themselves, be good citizens, but not simply good citizens of Philippi, I don't think he would have objected to that. I think he would have commended that. It wasn't just be good citizens of Philippi or even just be good citizens of, of Macedonia, the larger region there, or even be good citizens of Rome, which would have been proper. And you know, Paul leveraged and exercised his Roman citizenship at various times. He didn't flaunt it, but he wasn't shy about using it in a proper context. But he wasn't saying that. Not good citizens of Philippi, Macedonia, of Rome, or even be good citizens of the world. Paul called upon the saints of Philippi to be good citizens of the kingdom of God, a charge far superior to any of, its other ki- any other of its kind and one that informs all subsequent commands of this letter. So again, that command, as we established last week, I believe, I'm persuaded, and I hope to persuade you, will frame every other command of this book. Be good citizens. Walk worthy. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. So let's now turn our attention back to our text that we began working through last week, and we'll aim to finish together today, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Paul writes, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, and no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now, as I mentioned, we are returning to a text that we began engaging last week. And while it's not wholly unusual for us to work through a given text or passage over the period of two or three weeks, there's a, there's a slight disadvantage when we have to interrupt a sentence. And truthfully, while some might critique my sentences being long, Pauline sentences are much longer. And this 27 to 30 was actually one long sentence, often broken up at least into two in our 
various translations. But nevertheless, we broke up even the shorter sentence, as it were, really just covering through verse 27 and not completely therein. And so you lose something with that. And I'm mindful of that. And so we have to be mindful that to interrupt a sentence and or uh, only briefly announce that, yes, there were critical components that we didn't get to, or that we lose something there. And so I'd like to take some time to provide a brief review of some of the elements that we've covered and then allow what remains to naturally build off of that this morning. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a second, you, you just said you're going to review. That's fine. You're going to uh, reestablish the context so we can re-engage. But uh, wait, wait just a moment. We began our initial engagement with verses 27 through 30 with a bit of a review as well. So we're going to review a review before we get to the text. But no, we're in the text. Because you're right, we did review getting to verse 27 because there was a necessary context to establish. Even having walked through the book, I wanted you to see there's an overt connection and development of argument here. And the review at that time was, again, to get us to our text, to demonstrate that Paul was not simply finishing a series of formalities in the opening of a letter so that, okay, now I'm going to turn my attention to exhortations and commands. Because it's all the way until really not until 27 that you have your first imperative, your first command of the book. And what I didn't want you to view it as, okay, yes, we had the formalities, the introduction, we had the transition, we had the kind of the backstory for Paul and his context. Okay, now we're getting to the, you know, the meat of the letter, as it were. No. The meat of the letter has been developing all the way from the start. So rather, we ought to see that the whole of what was being developed in verses 1 through 26 should be viewed as contributing to our understanding and appreciation of this first command. It wasn't just, I have some things to say, okay, now let's get to business. He's been cultivating an argument, a slow and steady build to this opening command, a command that I believe shapes all subsequent commands in this letter. So we built up to our text by reviewing chapter 1 in three sweeping parts. And again, we we outline the book a little bit more precisely, but here we give it three sweeping parts. The foundation of the book's introduction, verses 1 through 11. So again, it captures the the authorship, the introduction, the thanksgiving, and and even all the way through his initial prayer for them. And so we had the the introduction of the book, 1 through 11, and the progress of the gospel. That was really, really important. As you remember, that continued to expand, but we're going to restrict it for our purposes here to uh, verses 12 through 20 in terms of the gospel's being preached, and in this I rejoice that Christ is being preached, no matter the motive, no matter if it be out of malice toward himself or otherwise. And then finally, we have Paul's exemplary service, which really was part of that gospel testimony, but for our purposes, again, it helps us to see introduction, gospel progress, and then Paul's exemplary service, which was 21 through 25. Actually, 21 through 26. And then we did narrow our focus. We did narrow our focus some and gave a little bit more attention to the third portion, that, that Paul's exemplary service. And so I argued the whole is building to the command in verse 27, but we're mindful that we're narrowing and uh, restricting our focus a bit to that third portion, namely Paul's exemplary service, not only on account of its proximity to our passage, but more importantly, because of its overt influence on Paul's command. How he frames that command really is immediately out of what just came in 22 through 21 through 26. A command that effectively states, I've expressed my personal aim, my personal identity. Now, put a like expression of this to your action in your lives. So again, 
Paul shared of his exemplary service, a service that was rooted in his identity, and with this, his philosophy of life and ministry, one that could be summed up by verse 21, where he states, quote, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think that's a, if you want to capture the, the essence of Pauline thought, theology, and practice, I think you could probably do it from other passages. Maybe another one's coming to mind, and you could think, well, that, that one really is helpful, but there's other, and there are, because he was obviously writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, but very clear and very concise in some of these things. But I would argue from Philippians, and it probably needs to be in that top list. If you want to understand Paul, there it is. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you remember that emphasis on me. This is Paul's thoughts, theology, and conviction. And itself was a, I'd argue, a beautiful articulation of those things. His thoughts, his theology, his convictions bound up in that one concise statement, which itself was an overflow of its immediately preceding statement where Paul expressed that, as you recall, that he desired to see Christ magnified in his body by life or by death. What does that look like? Well, it looks like for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And this magnificent statement, as you know from our work in 21 through 26, then led to Paul's expressed tension and uh, a resolution. So again, this is, this is who I am. This is what drives me. This is what identifies me. And that immediately led to a point of tension with, it's better to be with Christ. It's better for you to remain, or better for your benefit for me to remain. And then he provides a resolution. So again, a resolution that demonstrated his willingness to set his own best interests aside for the better are the best of others, namely the Philippians, and the advancement of their progress and joy in the faith. That's what motivated him to stay, to remain, to persevere, to continue in his labors, because he had a view to service of others. Because that's what it is to live as Christ and die as gain. Now, having refreshed our attention regarding the text development in these areas, I then encouraged you to view Paul's approach to his continued life and service as a way of seeing all of his subsequent engagements throughout this letter, namely as expressions of Paul pursuing their progress and joining the faith. So if he remains, for me to remain, this is for your benefit, what's it going to look like? What's well, going to look like your progress and joy in the faith? That's what I'm working toward. That's why I'm going to persevere and stay among you. And so I would say the rest of the book needs to be viewed through that. Why is he writing? What is he saying? It's always with a view to your progress and joy in the faith. And with this, I also encourage you to have a larger view to the day of Christ, as this is our joyous end. Therefore, any exhortation, correction, or command will have this day in view. We've established that all the way back to 1.6, and then we saw it again in chapter 1, and we're going to see it in chapter 2. The day of Christ is our end and is our aim. And so, naturally, anything you exhort, anything you encourage, anything you correct is going to have a view to the day of Christ. Now, that was a bit of a review, a primer to get back to where we were. And I, and I know it's maybe a bit of a, a bit much, especially not having notes before you. And we're not directly re-engaged in our passage yet. So here's why I'm refreshing your attention to these particular areas of our study from last week. They both serve to provide us vantage points that I wanted you to bring to this text and all that will follow. Again, namely that Paul's continued work for the progress and joy of their faith and such will shape the tone and message of this letter. So again, all moving forward, he's going to have a view to their progress and their joy. That's going to inform our command. It's going to inform how the command works itself out and the rest of the letter. And again, as we just established, Paul lived with and fostered a consistent view to the day of Christ, a view that calibrates our every thought and action. So I just want you to have those. Remember, we addressed that last week, but those are two 
kind of major things I want to bring to bear on how we view the commands, and especially this opening command. So, with this in view, we ought to approach Paul's command to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ as an expression of his cultivating their progress in joy in the faith, a progress in joy that will reach its glorious conclusion in the day of Christ. Now, we also discussed the nature of how the gospel is developed in this book and how that impacts our understanding of this text as well as the fact that Paul had earlier prayed for that which he has gone on to command the Philippians. All matters that I would direct your attention back to our first message on this passage, but just to give you a, a snapshot of it, it's one of the most gospel-dense books. Maybe that's surprising to some because you think in Romans and Galatians. It's one of the most gospel-tense books. But he's not expressing here is A, B, C, D of gospel. He is expressing our relationship and engagement with the gospel, which obviously factors into our passage. And also, again, um, I would remind you that um, he prayed for them. Well, how does he pray for them? Verses 9, 10, 11, with a view to their sanctification and specifically that progressive element and how does it work itself out? Well, it works itself out in he, how he commands their actions moving forward. So those are some things also that we approached this text with. But that being said, let's move on now to refresh ourselves in a few matters from the passage itself so that we can advance and complete the development of this command. So once more, Paul states, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live your lives, or as we've come to understand, be good citizens, namely good heavenly citizens who live worthy of the gospel. And if you, if you forget, how did we get from, wait a second, live your life to be good citizens? Well, that term itself was actually a, an expression of citizenship, as it were. And he picks that back up in chapter 3 as well. And so we're seeing in that vantage point in terms of the historical context and view of the development of the book that living your lives is being good citizens, namely good kingdom citizens. A charge that could also be expressed as a call to give due honor and glory to the gospel where we are now. We're living worthy of the gospel, worthy of the gospel, exercising our heavenly citizenship as sojourners. And so what are we doing? We're giving honor and due glory to the gospel where we are now, making the gospel's worth plain in the place of our sojourning. But as I tried to press last week, I'm just not sure that we can properly grasp this. I don't know that we can grasp the gravity of this command. Just think about it. If I told you to live worthy of, maybe your family has a magnificent reputation and what does that often do to people? It, it creates a lot of burdens for people, right? A lot of young people feel a burden with, oh, live up to the family name, or, or you're, you're part of a, maybe a team, and well, our team has a strong reputation. Um, last, or yesterday, we, the, the, the boys, so Isaiah, um, Silas, uh, Noah, so I'm just kind of looping you in here with, among the boys, um, had a cross-country meet, and I, I pulled up, and I can tell you the first thing I thought was, wow, there are so many people here. It's Humble Pie Day. Because they've done so well every time, and then they, they got first again. And so there can be a weight to that, right? Live up to that reputation. Live up to You better do it. You better fulfill your role. You better step up. And I'm not sure that we've transferred that kind of weightiness from daily life where we feel it to the nature of this call here. Do you hear what he's saying? Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
worthy of the gospel is a, is a call to live worthy of the power of the, and glory of God expressed in Christ's humility, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and sure return. You know, we get really excited when we read Romans 1.16, that it's the, the power of God for salvation to all who believe the gospel is. Well, that's what you're to live up to. You're to live worthy of that identification, of that citizenship. I don't know that we feel that weight enough. Maybe it's, maybe it's so big we've disconnected ourselves from that burden. And it's not a bad burden, but it ought to be one that provokes us to proper action. So it's a command, again, that's, that's all but overwhelming. And maybe, again, that's our escape is that we don't feel it because it's so much we just are just overtaken by it. But as we've labored to make clear, it's the expected conduct of one progressing or maturing in their faith and living with a view to the day of Christ. You know, again, we mentioned last week that Paul expected the Philippians' obedience. It wasn't, here's some ideal. It'd be really great. You'll progress very well, and people will think very good of you, and they'll be pleased with Christ if you just really try hard to be good kingdom citizens or to live worthy of the gospel. Now, what does he say? He's saying, I'm planning to come join you. And this is high priority. I, I'm incarcerated in Rome. This is years now from Jerusalem to Caesarea to Rome, with the expectation that he'll stand before Caesar, that his, his case will be properly adjudicated, he'll be free, and then he'll come among them. Why? Because it was for their greater good. Not because it was for his greater good, it was for their greater good. And what does he say in that context? So that when I come among you, or whether I come and see you, or remain absent, if that's, so we're going to have all both contingencies here. So I'll either see or I'll hear about your circumstances. He expected successful efforts in this endeavor. I will know of your progress. I will hear of your joy. I will receive news of the gospel being made much of, and I will know that you are living with a view to your superior citizenship in heaven. That was not an ideal. That was an expectation. And so maybe again, let's, let's reintroduce that burden because sometimes maybe that's how we wiggle out of it as well. I mean, really, who can do that? Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, seemed to think that that's something he could evaluate the Philippian zone. And that he was eager to. If I can't be there, I'm at least going to hear about it. But how? How do, we, how do we truthfully live worthy of the gospel? And I think that's a fair question because I've sat in many a chair or pew or otherwise, and, and you'll hear these big statements, and you think like, well, yeah, that sounds great, but what in the world do we do with it? Because... We might be eager to do it. Or we might even feel the burden of doing it, but then how does that work? How do we even take action? How do we put feet and hands to it? Remember James? He, he was pressing us to show me your hands. I want to see action and, and conduct tied to your faith. So how do we do that? Well, as you recall, Paul laid out three elements of expectation for living worthy of the gospel. They were to stand firm. They were to contend for the faith, and they were not to be alarmed by their opponents. Now, we worked through the first two of these elements last week, standing firm and contending, and with both of these, I tried to give some practical expressions of how to execute them well, from tenaciously holding fast to doctrinal truths to, to vigorously protecting one's holiness in all areas of life. The idea being that we are not forfeiting the ground that truth rightfully possesses and that we are fighting battles worth engaging in for the upholding of the honor and integrity of truth. Or as Kent Homer expressed it, the expectation that we are being charged to is to, quote, promote and protect the message of Christ. And 
That's what good citizens do, is it not? Promote and protect our community. Promote or protect our homeland. And our homeland, our citizenship, as Paul makes plain in chapter 3, I believe in verse 20 there, our citizenship, he states, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform our body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by his working through which he is able to even, sub- even subject all things to himself. So again, leaning on a, another friend to fill out what we've developed more completely last week, William Hendrickson stated regarding these matters of standing firm and contending, quote, they must stand fast in the Lord, rooted in him, trusting him, loving him, hoping in him, clinging to the traditions, the authoritative teachings which they have received, the faith, the body of redemptive truth, that pertains to and is revealed in the gospel. Those are expressions of holding fast and contending well. And so there we have, there we have the, the first two of our three elements for living worthy of the gospel. We took time to develop it last week. We refreshed ourselves this week. And so now we can move on. We have something to grab hold onto. We have some handles at least. It might still be difficult to, okay, but let's drill it down even more. Well, sometimes that's going to have to work itself out in personal application and in our respective context. But, you know, nevertheless, we've covered our, our first two out of three. So we're reached an overwhelming majority of effort at least to how to walk worthy, live worthy of the gospel of Christ, to be faithful kingdom citizens. And with this, we're clear to move on to the third element, right? No. Absolutely not. You know, I don't expect necessarily, um, we're not a big like, amen church and, or whatever. And it would be very disconcerting if I said something and someone's like, no. That would be very awkward. But this is a place where, no, it would be okay for you just to be like, no, no, it's not okay. We can't move on. I tried to make that clear last week and I want to be emphatically clear now. Because if I allow you to conclude otherwise, I've failed to properly exposit not only this text, but I've stripped a critical component from this letter. And you don't even have to look closely. Just give it a fair reading. So once more, let's hear it. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. You got that, right? In one spirit, with one mind, together. Do you understand that Paul was not writing a man named Philip? You know, sometimes my spell check, if, depending on if I make it plural with Philippians or not, it, it tries to make it Philippines, or, or I guess maybe if I abbreviate it, it might be Philip. But he wasn't writing to Philip. He was writing to the church of Philippi. He's writing to a corporate body, not an individual. Do you understand that when I was pressing that Paul's continued service and therefore his exhortations were with a view to y'all's progress and joy in the faith? He wasn't saying like, well, I'm writing because it would be better for, for you, for some particular individual. That would be true, but he had a view to the church. It was so valuable that he said, you know what? I, yes, I have a writing ministry. Yes, I have people coming and going for me, but there is a value to me joining Y'all, the corporate body, the local fellowship. It was not your progress in joining the faith. That is what we call a lesser included. So your, your particular, you're thinking, like, well, where's my application? Well, it, it is true of you as an individual, but that's a lesser included. You are one part of a greater unit, so your action applies to you, 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 and together it applies to all of us. 
So it is true that it applies to you, but true and that it applies to the whole of the church body. Paul was not ambiguous here. He was not writing to stir up individuals to be good citizens, living lives worthy of the gospel. He was writing to the church, to the assembly of saints who come together for prayer, worship, exhortation, correction, fellowship, and shared service, who see value not simply in their own progress, but in the progress of Christ's body. It is those persons, that unit of believers, that he has unpacked how to live a life worthy of the gospel, a work that is not a solo act. So view these elements as framed with the underlying expectation that you are applied, that are applied with a unity of mind in the Lord, a unity that I believe he's emphatically emphasizing here. Because you could argue, and maybe some would be like, well, he's always writing a corporate body. He's always writing a church unless it's to an individual. And so why are you so emphatic? I'm so emphatic because I look at the language of this text. Together, together, you, all of you, one, He's writing to a corporate body and emphasizing very clear language of unity. But not all agree with, well, and I'm not sure that the, the emphasis is there quite to the degree that you do. And not everybody's going to agree, and that's, that's fine. That's part of us struggling and working to understand the text together. And some very respected commentators and teachers uh, view, particularly the, the nature of the one spirit, when they say, well, that's an element uh, that element's a reference to the Holy Spirit. as He's the one that provides the means of our unity. And that's, that's true. I just don't think that's what he's saying here. And they have some good arguments based off of both grammar and textual comparisons. And it provokes wrestling and good wrestling. And so I read and I reread and I wrestled and I studied not only my conclusions, which thankfully also put me in some good company, but that of others. Uh, and I'm not persuaded away from the conclusion that this is a clear expression of intense unity, here structured in a redundant-like parallel, standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending together. I think he wants us to see that as a, an immediate parallel, an intimate association to say unity. I'm using different words and I'm pressing them together to really emphasize that it's not just that you stand firm. It's not just that you contend. It is that y'all stand firm. Y'all contend. And he's pressing that. And there's a plain intimacy of union here by way of terms that are extremely close, but bear a measure of distinction. These uh, being spirit and soul. Soul commonly translated as mind in this particular text because of its functional expression in the context. And therefore, what I would argue here is that Paul was referencing the well appreciated unity of the intimate, immaterial person that constitutes the core of who we are, our faith, our actions, our affections, our joy, convictions, and conduct. So while spirit and soul can be used interchangeably, and I, I know there's given context maybe for some over others, but they are used interchangeably at times within the larger scope of the scriptures, they're not often found operating this way in the same immediate context. Usually you're going to have some kind of contrast when you're using these two like terms, but I would argue he would say, no, look at these two different terms and see them basically as the same thing to emphasize that intimacy and intensity of unity. But there, again, um, there would be exceptions to that seeing contrasted, and I would argue this helps my case here. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the two terms used as, a, as an expression of unity. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul's not promoting a distinction of man's immaterial person. It's not a trichotomy here. It's emphasizing the whole of one's person, their soul and their spirit and their body. 
that the Lord will accomplish this work in you, the whole you, the total you. And then we also read in a well-established, well-known passage, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Again, the, the author of Hebrews is giving a graphic picture of the piercing separation that the word of God produces, splicing apart that which is intimately knit as one. And you might say, well, no, no, because joint and marrow, you can separate those. But I would argue you try to separate thoughts and intentions. They're, they're intimately knit together. And I would argue such is the nature with division of soul and spirit. He's saying that such is the piercing and sharp and effective nature of the word of God. And so he's saying that it could even parse that intimacy of union, which again, I would say argues to the persuasion of, of seeing this as a unit, to seeing soul and spirit here as a redundant expression of intimate union. And... Some of you might be like, well, I'm just not persuaded. That's okay. I do see it as part of my charge to persuade you, not to manipulate you to my conclusion, but to persuade you out of the scriptures. So let me help a little bit more. What about Jesus' answer to the greatest commandment in Mark chapter 12? And when one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, he recognized that he had answered them well and asked, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And so I just ask, are we prepared to parse heart, soul, and mind? Are we prepared to say, well, this is where this one starts, this is where this one starts, and this is why they're distinct? Or might these be an intimate overlap of like elements expressing a comprehensive whole? Or perhaps we could consider the testimony of Acts chapter 4, a part of the passage that we love and we rejoice in the, the unity of the early church Acts chapter 4, verse 32, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one was saying that any of his possessions was his own, but for them everything was common. Ah, but they had an intimacy of union expressed in their physical assets because they were of one heart and one soul. Are you going to parse that? Are you going to say, well, they were of one heart but not of one soul? Or they were of one soul but not of one heart? He's expressing that there's a comprehensive way to view one's inner man and to say, look, when I overlap like terms, I'm pressing the matter of more comprehensive and I would argue here more intimate. So again, if that's true, then what Paul states, you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel, then he's expressing an intimately parallel emphasis critical for our obedience. In other words, if we're going to be good kingdom citizens, we cannot go it alone. We cannot operate without an intimacy that is all but impossible to parse. It's not, oh, this is my takeaway. I'll stand firm. I'll contend. Paul had no such view of that. Saying Philippians, unit, individuals, bound together. Y'all stand firm. Y'all contend together. Well, of course, that's the nature of the church. No, don't you understand that it's what he's emphasizing, it's what he's pressing. This is what good kingdom citizens do. You're not an individual citizen. And how we get there is an all but impossible challenge. Because as much as we desire such an intimate union within the church, it's beyond our natural efforts. How are we going to cultivate that measure of intimate union, that, that measure of oneness? 
we're going to succeed, aren't we? We tried really hard. We, we, from the early days, we were priding ourselves on uh, vigorously loving one another from the heart as Peter's charged us. But it's hard, at least within our own capacity. So this is where the Spirit of God does come into the equation as he empowers us for us, empowers us to take on the supernatural humility of service to others while laboring to understand and apply truth, matters that are more fully worked out in chapter 2. And maybe you've already, mind if you've been in Philippians, is already tracking there that, ah, yes, have this mind in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. And what was that? That he humbled himself. And what does Paul say? I want you to have a like unity. How is that unity cultivated? With humility, deference to others. And so I hope I've persuaded you here. But because I feel an urgency to be sure that I've applied due diligence in such a critical matter, I'm going to press it just a little bit more so that you'll see that I was not overselling the, the weight that this matter carries, not only here, but for the book as a whole. A book written to a beloved church that was doing well, but that could always do better. So consider three passages at this time. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Quote, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, even at whatever pace I do or don't maintain, we will be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, very, very, very soon. And so I'm going to reserve most of my comments for that time, but note that emphasis on unity, and in particular, unity of mind, unity of thinking. And how do you get there? By humility of mind, which is expressed in a way that sounds quite similar to Paul's engagement in chapter 1, verse 21 through 26, namely that to live as Christ, to die is gain. What does that look like? It looks like I'm going to defer in love and humility to the benefit of others because he loved the church and he wanted to cultivate good citizenship among them, as it were. Chapter 3, verse 15, quote, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, think this way. And if anything you think differently, God will reveal that also to you. Pretty emphatic and clear, isn't it? Paul has a very clear desire, think this way. But he's not demanding some homogenous thinking in all areas of life, but there was a clear expectation for like thinking about matters of Christ and the superior value of pressing on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, a pattern of thinking all believers are to share. And now chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and you eventually... I'm hoping to, to persuade you that your, your Bible, I, I want it to fall open in Philippians, and then I want it just kind of the page to floop over to chapter 4. And be like, why does it do that? Somebody's like, why is your Bible? That's very peculiar. Who looks at Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3? You know, you have such great things in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Why chapter 4? Because if you don't understand 4, 1 to 3, I think you missed the book. Therefore, my brothers, loved and longed for my joy and crown, and this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved, I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel, 
with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names were written or whose names are in the book of life. Here we have the only other reference to standing firm in the book. Given, Paul talks about standing firm throughout his letters in various contexts, but the only other time in Philippians. You may think, well, okay, that's, just, that's interesting, but no, he's pressed us. Opening command, walk worthy, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. How does that work itself out? First thing is, stand firm. And what does he do? The one other time he returns to it is here. Beloved, stand firm. And then in the same immediate context, the only other use of the particular term for contending, not only in Philippians, but anywhere in the New Testament. Now consider this. We have the book's first and arguably foundational command, a command that is impacted with three elements, two of which include standing firm and contending, terms not returned to until here in chapter 4, where we have the only critique or matter of restorative care to a believer in the book. A restorative care that includes a clear command, not to them, but to another. Help these women. Help them. This is a matter of urgency. Come alongside them. They've been faithful. Stand firm. Contend. They've contended. They need to think now the same way in the Lord. Do you understand that Paul's not saying, oh, well, you know, their reputation, I hope they'll stand firm. I hope they'll contend. They've done that. He's saying now something has been introduced and they're not united in mind. They're not fulfilling that kingdom citizen perspective that was so critical. They, they may be contending. They may continue to stand firm, but they're not doing it together. And so he says they need to think the same way in the Lord. It's the only correction in the book. Paul's prioritizing a restoration of unity of mind in the Lord, the very unity that binds together the effectual application of these two elements of exercising a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So don't lose sight of this. You are not and never will be a good kingdom citizen as you ought to be short of standing firm and contending together in one spirit with one mind. And that is a measure of intimate union that is impossible for us to, to secure, much less to maintain. It's a work of the Spirit of God and a humble people that have a view to the day of the Lord. So don't rejoice. Don't, don't rejoice in, in Paul's magnificent declaration for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because the application he gave to the Philippians was this. So you don't get to own that if you're not willing to do this. If you're not prepared to embrace his accompanying command for the church, namely, again, living our lives worthy of the gospel. That's the counterpart to his own thoughts, philosophy, expression of ministry, and conviction. So this last week, just to fill out just a little bit more, I'd actually planned on putting a whole range of verses out for you. But I decided better, and especially in view of this. Uh, so this last week when I was serving in the jail ministry, one of the inmates asked if he could see my Bible, and that's fine. Um, I, I think there was a measure of curiosity, because I do use the, the LSB, and sometimes the language would be slightly different, and, and that's fine. I try to be very careful about, look, there's a lot of good English translations, and there are. Um, but, and I thought he was just initially curious of, of those details, those, cur uh, those translation matters. But then I saw him kind of fanning through it. Why would you fan through a Bible? You're looking for bookmarks. You're looking for what are you looking for? And then I realized he's probably curious as to how I mark my Bible. And he may have been a bit confused because it was thoroughly unmarked. I've gone through different seasons. I have Bibles that I can't even decode what I was doing. I have Bibles that I 
I literally used whiteout tape because I didn't want the headers there persuading my conclusions and my wrestling with the text and and, and highlighting marker and pen. It's 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 a bit of a mess sometimes. And so I've decided at this point in my life to keep my pages effectively blank. It might be just that I've, I've drifted toward some peculiar measure of like, I want clean pages. I don't know. But nevertheless, I would say that's my printed pages are nice and clean. And it helps me as I engage the text and just raw text, raw text. But every week when I'm, I'm filling up whiteboards. So if you know me, um, you know, there, there, I'll be in proximity to a whiteboard. Um, a physical whiteboard, maybe even a digital whiteboard. Sometimes on Wednesday nights, I'm drawing up here and you're thinking, that just, it made sense at first, but now I don't understand. It's a process. So I'll fill up whiteboards, exhaustively scribbling, marking and coloring, also in digital copies of passages. And so if you pulled up my computer, you would see Philippians 1, 27 to 30, marked. And then you'd see color coding and shifting and lines drawn and written on. Efforts that would make a, a printed Bible, again, all but unintelligible after a while. And I shared that because I went back through Philippians. I had made a whole digital copy of the book for myself. And I highlighted, I wanted to go through, I wanted to press myself. Is this really a heavy theme? Are, are you just, because you know, we can fall into ruts. So I see unity everywhere. But I wanted to see, is it, where am I seeing it in this book? And so I highlighted over and over, expressions of unity. What does it look like? And how has it developed all throughout Philippians? And when I finished, it looked like a toddler who just learned how to take the cap off a marker got hold of the document. It's like, well, you might as well have just highlighted what you didn't, where you didn't see unity, because it was all throughout the book. And I didn't have to, to borrow and force and be like, oh, I see it everywhere. Unity, unity, unity. Just read Philippians and read with an openness of mind to say, wait a second, his opening command give such a heavy emphasis, is he going to develop that? And the answer, I would argue, is yes. Well, what about those high points of the book? Philippians chapter 2, the great Christology. Well, it is all about unity. Unity with a view to Christ. And it would have been just as well to have highlighted again those non-references because it was saturated. And if you don't get that, then I've not effectively been teaching the passage or the book so far. Because you have to understand such is so critical to the heart of Philippians. Because this gospel-rich book, again, is abounding in this fruit of God's work in the hearts of his people. But I'll tell you this, understanding these matters is one thing. Applying them, again, is quite another. Because, again, I, I can stand firm and contend quite fine alone. The, there's mediums and opportunities for that. It's easy to do, to, to go it alone in these things. And in such, what I'd be doing, though, is expressing a deficient application of the command. And truthfully, I or anyone else has fooled themselves to truthfully conclude that they can do such matters alone. We were never designed for such a work to be carried out solo. And so, yes, I have a burden for the gathered church. That is a personal pastoral burden for the gathered church, the unified church, the church that stands firm and contends together. Because I'm wholly persuaded that Paul was sincere in his expectations for the Philippians and by extension all believers to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And just how do we get there? Well, I think, again, chapter 2 may be the beginning of that answer, but before we get there, we have some more work to do. We need to look at that third element, don't we? And like, well, there's, there's one more. Is he going to talk for a week and a half about that? No, we're, we're going to be concise. I think the first two carry a lot of the weight 
But let's come to that third one now. The third element of our living worthy, the gospel, comes in verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So I would say if you look at the balance, if you just look at the, the raw um, lines and, and, and word count, as it were, I'd say a significant amount of attention is placed in 27 to 30 on opposition and suffering in the final portion of this text. It's a lot of what he actually has to say here. And both are realities for a faithful kingdom citizen or for one who is striving to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. There will be opponents and there will be suffering. Here in verse 28, Paul speaks to the matter of opponents, those who would challenge our efforts to stand firm and who introduce the need to contend for the faith of the gospel. So what needs to be understood now is not whether opponents exist or will be introduced in some shape or form, but what will be our response? Will there be a proper confidence that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world? 1 John 4.4 4. Will we be shaken by the words of an apostle who just came back from being stoned, presumably to death, but goes on to exhort the churches, quote, through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22. Remember, I, I don't think you're going to get more persuasive than that. Paul's stoned to death, comes back, and they're like, what's the message, Paul? Through many afflictions you must enter the kingdom of God. Well, that, that can be weighty and intimidating, can't it? Or will we draw back when we read Jesus' words that if they've called the, head, the, called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Or will we find due confidence when he gives the precious encouragement in his final hours before crucifixion, quote, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. I don't know about you, but I don't like having opponents. I'm not going through life itching for a fight. I've known people like that. Not good company. Now, by personality and temperament, I have a respectful measure of fight in me, and I'm grateful for that to a degree, but it may be maybe something that's not necessarily a spiritual trait. It may actually be something that needs greater sanctification. But even so, as I stated, I do not like having opponents. But when we read but when we're united with Christ, we left the home team of this world. You know, we talked about Bhutan and that when you come to faith, you may lose your citizenship. It's not, well, I revoke it in, in Jesus' name. No, it's not that. It's a, you, you may be disqualified from citizenship. And you've introduced opponents into your life now. And when we embrace the citizenship of heaven, we forsook the citizenship of this world. And so we will most naturally have opponents. And that's okay. You need to know that's okay. And there's no need for alarm. Because if in Christ, then our opponents have an opponent. Isn't that encouraging? It's not that, oh no, I have an opponent now because I've, I'm united with Christ. It's now I'm united with Christ. And now those who would oppose me have an opponent. And a most terrifying opponent to have at that. And as you may recall, as Pastor Frank was actually just praying this morning, Jesus reminded his disciples of this. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's quite an ally to have, isn't it? So we, together, must understand this, that the gospel that we are aspiring to live worthy of has been summarized a number of times over the last two weeks in the following way. The power and glory of God expressed in Christ's humility, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and sure return. And if we believe that gospel, then we know opponents will come. 
And that while they, while they introduce hardships, difficulties, even sorrows for a time, one thing they ought never to introduce is alarm or fearful surprises. And as such, Paul reminds, here, reminds us here that this is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for us. And that too is from God. The outcome of Christ's church and her opponents is not unclear. It's not that, again, we pull up to the race and be like, ooh, I'm not sure. We've got some fast ones, but it's, it's not really clear. Or that you, um, probably some of you will um, watch some of the football games today or tomorrow or Thursday or whenever they are, and, and you'll, you'll have some, the, the, there's the odds. Ah, this team's favored. It's not, it's not, this isn't how we view Christ church and, and her opponents. It's not unclear. It's not open to the whims of unexpected actions. It is wholly determined and clear. It is salvation and it is destruction. Salvation for those in Christ, destruction for those who are Christ opponents. This alone ought to produce a proper resolve, a lack of fear, a lack of alarm, which is a plain sign of what is coming. And as such, we, Christ church, are being pressed to greater maturity and joy with a view to the day of Christ. We, Christ church, are advancing in our progress to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul goes on to build this out further, speaking to two gracious gifts from God, believing and suffering. Quote, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been granted. It has been granted. As a, you know, it's a fascinating word choice. And this is one of the contexts where I wish the English had just smoothed it out a little bit. It, it would have been perfectly fine. Because granted has the root of grace, and it's often expressed as graciously given. God has graciously given us belief. And we would all say, yes, he has. What a glorious kindness, one that we readily celebrate. We think back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And so we say, yes, he's graciously given us belief. Plainly, I think we can, we can get our mind around this, or, or so we presume that we can at least. But what of God's other gracious gift? Gracious gifts of suffering. A gift that perhaps we uh, somberly accept while limiting ourselves to maybe Job's rebuke to his wife who spoke out when seeing the grave distress and torment of her husband, she or he responds to her, you're, you're, you're speaking like one of the foolish women, and then he, he finishes with a, a good, firm rebuke, and maybe this is the best we can do to hang on to the fact that God graciously gives us suffering. Okay, yeah, I remember what Job said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? That's a good place to land, but I think we can do better, because there's more to this gift, isn't there? It's not just, well, then I can't accept the one without the other because God is faithful and God is just and he does give what is best and he will honor his name. But that's true, but view this as a gracious gift. Not because you're eating something that's healthy for you and be like, oh, it's healthy. It's gracious. It's enjoyable. So how do we cultivate that? How do we properly appreciate such matters and in such further fill out a gospel-worthy life? Well, we have to first remember that these gracious gifts are for Christ's sake. There, with a view to his exaltation. It's not for your sake. It is for Christ's sake. It's with a view to his exaltation. And so if you view Christ being exalted above your comfort, preferences, and otherwise, then we can rejoice right there, right? Good starting point. And that's not the, the, 
It's, and that is not the, the mysterious part. The mysterious part is that God is actually pleased to use these gifts, these gracious gifts, for our greater progress and even joy in the faith. So it's not, well, okay, it's for Christ's sake. I can rejoice in that. True. Land there. That's great. But go even further now. We're not going to stop with Job and say, well, God gives all good things and gives even what's best, and it's his to give. And we're not going to just stop and say, well, it's for Christ's sake and for his glory, and if that's what I have to deal with, that's what I have to deal with. I would say also look at it in view of the fact that it's for your progress and joy. A truth that we see time and time again, such as in Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. That's, that's joy fodder, right? That should provoke joy. Or consider this, very familiar to some of you. I hope many of you, I hope you almost start singing it. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Ah, so we, there's joy with being made perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Well, what about 1 Peter 1, 6-7, maybe this, this is driveway days, early driveway days at that. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. Or what about 1 Peter 4, 12-14? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And let's bring it back to Philippians. And we read in chapter 3, more than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Believing and suffering are gracious gifts and elements of the gospel of Christ. Believing, the mean, uh, believing being the means by which we come to salvation and suffering is the manner in which our salvation is often worked out. Notably, suffering is a means of Christ being conformed in us and us demonstrating Christ as we stand firm, as we contend, and as we're not fearful. Finally, Paul reminds them of his participation in their suffering having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul himself was demonstrating the pattern of God's gracious gifts at work within him. They too join Paul's example, which, they will, in, which will in turn yield to Christ's greater example being put on display. And this was but among the outworking of Paul's story, one that was concisely expressed again, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, which will include a like measure and expression of suffering. They saw and now heard of his enduring testimony as one who not only charged others, but was himself a worthy citizen. They saw and heard of his faithful life amidst God's gracious gifts, and now he expects to hear, also hear if he cannot himself see of their own faithful journey. And that's part of the relationship in this book. 
you saw, you heard, and now I hope to hear and I hope to see. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel and no way alarmed by your opponent, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. So what I would have us to walk away with now is living worthy of the gospel or being good kingdom citizens is, is cultivated by having a unity of mind in the Lord and having a unity of mind in the Lord uh, tenaciously and, 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 and walking together unified to resolve to hold to and defend the gospel remaining unalarmed by opponents. We do it together. We strive. We labor together. With, with the resolve to stand firm, with the resolve to contend, with the resolve to not be alarmed, and with the unity of mind in the Lord, having a proper view and appreciation of God's gracious gifts, recognizing that he gives belief and he gives suffering. And it's plainly a high charge. I mean, goodness gracious, live your life worthy of the gospel. Just let it rattle around. And if it settles too easily, then I don't think you got it. It's a high charge, but also remember this. It was wholly expected and therefore must be a clear expression of our progress in joining the faith as we ask not what our Lord will do for us, but what, he, what we might do for him, who has already done more abundantly than we could ever think or ask. That's what good citizens do. So let's go to the Lord. Let's, let's petition, Lord, would you help us be good citizens, living worthy of the gospel? Lord, we do thank you for um, these precious and beautiful truths that I think back to that would seem like such a magnificent high point, 121, for, me, for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we think about, well, of course that makes sense with how Paul cultivated his thanksgiving, his joy in the gospel, his labor amongst them, his prayers, and, and all such things. Of course that would be Paul's nature and disposition. And may, maybe we were reasonably provoked at that time. Well, I, I want to say something of a like nature. How can, that, how can that be applied to me? And that's exactly what he's done here for us. The application toward us, toward the church, not only toward the Philippians, but to all who are in Christ is to live our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that has very clear expressions of action. Very clear expressions of action that aren't independently executed. You have a body, you have a bride, you have a people, you have a church. And Paul is so clear. We do this together. And sometimes I think about, boy, the, the plight of children in, in group projects. That's when we start learning. I'd rather do it by myself. I'd rather, I'd rather not have that weaker person, that frustrating person, that guy with all the thoughts, that girl that doesn't want to, to listen to me. That's not the nature of a unit. And so, Lord, would you be pleased to give us help? Um, I, I don't know how that's even possible. And so we look to you, Lord. Would you give us the grace of humility? Would you give us the grace of greater faith and greater joy and progress so that we, we would know that clear measure of unity as gospel-worthy citizens? That that would be the identity 
that continues to be cultivated out of Grace Bible Church. It would be, yes, that we earnestly love one another. Yes, we seek to walk in joyful obedience. And we long for our Lord's return, but it would also be that, that we do such with a view to our heavenly citizenship, and we're in this together. We do it together. And we need your help to that end, Lord, because we know that will be pleasing to you, and we know that's what's expected. So we ask, give us that grace, uh, cultivate that maturity and that joy within us. We pray in Jesus' name.